Now, did he mean to say limitless use of alcohol? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When I first read it, I thought it. I thought it was like limited. And then I was like, wait, this doesn't make sense with what I read next. Then it was like, oh, limitless. Limitless. <laughs> Oh, welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good evening. Well, good after evening to... It is evening there, isn't it? I mean, it's 4.30, I guess that's evening. It's getting close. It's probably getting dark by now. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give... Ugh, I haven't done this in so long. To give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, George, who do we have this time on the pod? Never say that again. Um, so today, uh, in order to avoid upsetting Aaron and his Reddit friends, we'll be departing from our well-trodden thematic path of Catholic and Orthodox characters from Western Europe and Russia and covering something completely different. A Buddhist. Oh, a Buddhist. So we must be heading to Japan or China, Thailand, perhaps? In fact, our story starts in the well-known Buddhist stronghold of Graz, Austria, with the birth of our topic, a Baltic German nobleman named Robert Maximilian Nicholas... Um, no, Robert Nicholas Maximilian Hormann Freiherr von Ungarn Sternberg, sometimes titled the Mad Baron or the Bloody Baron. So not Wait, Thailand. Ev everything will be made clear. Patience. I mean, I'm not even sure which part of that Patience. I was going to start to question. Zen or something. I don't know. Just okay, meditate. Right. I need to find inner peace over here. Yeah, find your inner peace. There we go. I hope you know I'm going to play the Kung Fu Panda soundtrack over this whole thing. God. I mean, it's probably be an improvement. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Are we Zen? Are we Zen? Yes, I I'm Zen. <laughs> okay, good. So I was considering adding uh, like a whole section on ancient aliens and the entrance to Agartha hidden on Mount Erebus in Antarctica, since this show apparently no longer cares about historical accuracy if recent episodes are any indication, but my conscience just wouldn't stand for it. So unfortunately, you're going to get the real story, complete and very unabridged, but I promise you that it's crazy enough that you can pretend it's 3AM History Channel, grocery store, tabloid, fake news if you want. That's all I ask. I don't need aliens. I don't need Agartha. I don't need Mount Erebus. I don't need any of that. I just need to feel like I'm watching something at 3 a.m. on the History Channel. In a hotel room. <laughs> In a hotel room. <laughs> well, let me get my peanuts and we'll head on down. On the lonely steps of Mongolia, one Estonian-German-Russian man reached for greatness and battled the dark forces of reptilian Bolshevism. Did he achieve this illustrious goal? No. Instead, he invented Mongolia and killed a lot of people along the way. Join us for a tale replete with harsh conflict, presumable periods of starvation and squalor, and reincarnated godhood in the story of the Mad Baron of Mongolia. So, George, it's a little bit late now, but I'm just curious, what did you do for Christmas? Well, first of all, 
it's always Christmas in my heart. Um, oh. <laughs> so uh, basically, I arranged a series of risottos and lamb sauces into a circle and then screamed verbal abuse at them until Gordon Ramsay appeared in the circle. I then held him at gunpoint and made him cook the greatest Christmas dinner ever. What about you? Can you top that? I did. I definitely didn't summon the spirit of Gordon Ramsay. Um, what did I do for Christmas? I mean, I kind of hung out, opened some presents. I got a sweet robe. That was kind of a win. Nice, nice, <laughs> solid. But I did. I didn't summon a ghost of Christmas dinner. <laughs> Your loss. I know, I know. But it's not always Christmas in my heart. It's just always Christmas on that Christmas episode we recorded all those years back. Which I still fondly listen to now and then. Though I think there's two of them, if I remember right. Yeah, I don't I don't matter. Well, here we are. It has been such a long time. So, computer, if you would, please bring up Baron von Udengen Sternberg. Well, Aaron, you know the drill, so would you please start us off by describing the charming picture before you? Well, what I'm seeing looks like a metal album cover, though I couldn't say for sure. I seem to suspect that this is what this is from. But here we've got a guy with a very rectangular head, which that's not being trying to be offensive. His forehead is rather large, indicating extreme intelligence and... His eyes are almost glowing like the laser eye memes in this in this drawing, photograph, what have you. Yeah, they kind of are. He, I didn't notice that. Yeah, he's got a very thick but well well maintained beard, and you know he doesn't look like a barbarian so much as he looks like a Templar. And the reason I say he looks like a Templar is he has a giant Excalibur-looking sword next to him, and he's got a cross on his chest. And I don't know about this period, but sometimes the cross can mean different things, if you, if you know what I mean. But he also appears to be either in a hellish or apocalyptic landscape, so I'm just assuming that he did that and the sword is currently sticking out of the chest of one of his enemies. Basically. Also, what's he, what is he wearing? He appears to be... I don't, don't even know what you call that. Is that like a, a cloak or a... I don't know what you call it either, but it's some sort of silk... Vaguely mm. Asiatic-looking garment. Hmm. And is he wearing gloves too, or are those just the sleeves? I think those, those are, are just the sleeves. sleeves. Yeah. He's got some kind of magical ring of power on as well. Oh, so he does. Yeah. So and he one does. hand is not visible, so we can presume he's reaching for a large revolver to finish the job. <laughs> Most likely. Most likely. All, All right. right. Let's. Thank you. Good. Thank you, Aaron. So let's get going. So our friend. Uh, little Roman, who also had like eight other names, but we'll keep it simple and just call him Roman, or maybe sometimes Ungern, but we're not going to recite the whole litany every time. So, Good. Roman <laughs> was born in 1886 in Graz, Austria. His family were Baltic Germans, who are Germans who had moved east from around the 12th, 13th century onward as explorers, missionaries, traders, crusaders, you know, what, what have you. And just vague adventurers. There were the Baltic used to be inhabited by a lot of Germans. That changed after World War II, but we're not going to get into that. Um, 
Who knows what happened to them? It's I don't can only I guess. Can only I can't guess. possibly imagine. <laughs> so yeah, the Baltic Germans being stuck in a little bit of a tricky spot between a series of kingdoms and empires. You know, the Swedish, the Polish, the Russians, the normal Germans, etc. They usually ended up in a position of accepting one of those other great powers as their overlord while keeping their local autonomy. And for that reason, they end up being represented among the nobility of non-German nations. For example, the Ungarn Sternberg House had branches among the German, Swedish, Finnish, and Russian nobility. And like very many Baltic Germans, this family was very much entangled in the workings of the Russian Empire, and many members of Roman's family had served in the Russian military and in the imperial administration. At a later time, i.e. the end of the episode, uh, Roman would actually boast when he was facing his own death that 72 of his ancestors had died in Russia's wars in service of the Tsar. That's, uh, that's quite a high number. It's um, a lot. Um, yeah. Hold on. All right. Now oh, that was, continue. that was crisp. That was crisp. Oh, it's a seven up, so. <laughs> oh, oh, baby. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so, uh. Roman's father was not an especially warm and caring individual, from what I can see. Um, red flag number one, he was a geologist, mm. and <laughs> I don't know why, but that's just, that's a red flag to me. Um, it's just, it's the rock, and it's, you stare at rocks long enough, and the rocks just start to inhabit your brain, and there's there's no coming back after that. Yeah, I believe they call them, like, brain stones, or something yeah, like be, that. You know, be, beware if you spend your life fighting rocks, eventually you become one, or something. Um, so anyway, <laughs> Driven his, mad by rocks. his dad was not an especially warm or caring individual, and also suffered one from- One might say he was stone cold, <laughs> aren't <laughs> <laughs> and also suffered from some sort of mental collapse while Roman okay. was still very young, uh, leading to mm. his eventual confinement in an insane asylum for five years. Though the, the records are very vague about what the nature of his illness was, just that he had something wrong with his mind. Um, couldn't Geologism. Really, <laughs> couldn't really find anything more than that. Um, the fact that two of his children had died very young um, probably didn't help whatever mental situation he had going on. And the couple ended up separating when Roman was only five. Apparently, it's hard to be married to a crazy geologist. Yeah, especially so, after losing two kids. That's, yeah, so that's you rough. can mark that bingo square. Um, <laughs> by, that, by that time, however, once they'd separated, the family had returned to their regular Baltic stomping grounds in Rival, which is now called Tallinn, i.e. the city in Estonia. Or, at that time, it was the capital of the governorate of Estonia, because Estonia was part of the Russian Empire. So they were just in Austria living there for a while. I'm not entirely sure why, but he most of his life childhood spent in Estonia. They go back when he's only five. He was a uh, little Roman was apparently not a very pleasant child. And we can probably assume that part of that is due to his family circumstances of, you know, crazy rock dad and separated parents <laughs> yeah. and all that. When, uh, when he was eight, his mother remarried to another Baltic German nobleman named Oskar Anselm Hermann Freiherr von Heunigen Hühne. <laughs> well, you can tell he's a nobleman. Yeah, and that he's German, too, I think. Yeah, it's all in there. It's something about Freiherr. I don't know. Von, yeah. So, yeah. in addition to remarrying, uh, his mother also prevented Roman from having contact with his father throughout his childhood, even once his father was out of the asylum. I guess she didn't want to take any chances with him becoming a crazy geologist as well. Right, yeah, that's the risk you don't want to take. I mean, once they go 
once they go into the asylum and they've finally discovered the the nature of their rock insanity, they come out and then they're just a bad influence, so I get it. <laughs> but in any case, you can see why this is a little bit of a troubled childhood, you know. Not yeah. getting to talk to your dad, who's crazy because of rocks, and, you know, it all adds up. So, mm -hmm. Roman apparently wasn't a fan of his stepdad, um, since in all his letters and conversations throughout his life, he literally never mentions his stepdad once, even though, you know, he had acted as his father for all but the first five or six years of his life. You know, he'd grown up in this man's house and all of that, and he literally never mentions his name once in any of his communications. And there's also oh. a, a note from a teacher in his school record which says that he had, quote, a bad attitude towards his stepfather. So this is not, right. a, not a happy childhood. I would wonder why, I mean, maybe perhaps he resented the stepfather for not being into rocks? Uh, I'll get off the rock thing. I'm it, sorry. It, it could be. It could be. I get off Get off the rock before you hurt yourself. Yeah. That's what my parents used to <laughs> okay. tell me whenever we were hiking. <laughs> so, nevertheless, um, Roman was an intelligent child, and in addition to his native fluency in German and Russian, he also learned French, English, and Estonian. Which that's uh, that's quite impressive. I don't know. I don't know English. Um, so, <laughs> so throughout his childhood, his family spent a lot of time on an island called unpronounceable Estonian word. I think <laughs> Hayuma. I'm not, I'm very uncomfortable with double I's and double A's. In there's in way words. too many vowels in there. There really are. Like there, that's a that's a seven letter word, and there are only two consonants. That's unreasonable get it together that, estonia it's a mistake mistake so anyway this island that they said he spent his uh, vacations on had been ruled by his ancestors for several hundred years including by his great great grandfather otto who had basically been a pirate king on the island using false lighthouses to lure ships into crashing and then murdering everyone and stealing their stuff <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> Yep. Uh, he was eventually and, yeah. uh, caught and shipped off to Siberia for this. Oh. <laughs> and this is an, another charming little anecdote of domestic bliss. He also apparently lined up all his servants every morning and hit them all ten times with his stick just in case they had done something to deserve it. <laughs> this is the pirate king? <laughs> this is the pirate king, yes. <laughs> so definitely a charmer. Uh, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, even though this had been, you know, a few generations before, legends of the murderous Lord Otto were still common on the island, and one can only imagine the sort of effect that would have on an already troubled kid from a, you know, troubled family, the getting to yep. hear about how your great-grandfather was a pirate king. I mean, it's better than, like, hearing that your great-grandfather was, like, a milkshake maker salesman. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess so, but, like, when you've already got sort of the, the troubled thing going on, I feel like this compounds that. Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely a little something in the, the in there that would probably not not do you so good. So yeah, we don't have a whole lot of material about what Roman was like as a child, but what we do have isn't good. Uh, when he was 12, he apparently murdered his neighbor's pet owl. Oh, I'm why? Not, I there's there's no recorded reason, just that he he did. Okay. Yep. And once he went off to an elite school at age 15 he was apparently an obstinate terror who refused to obey rules or teachers whom he considered his inferiors and despite his natural intelligence had terrible grades because he just didn't care and wouldn't you know listen to teachers right 
And uh, in fact, one historian describes him this way. So why don't you read this in a nice historian voice for us? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, not to have been a bully as such, but as his later behavior suggests, rather one of those pupils of whom even the bullies are afraid, the kind who violate the unwritten rules of childhood fights whom nobody wants to sit near, and who cannot be trusted with compasses or scissors. <laughs> so he's <laughs> he wouldn't make it through the TSA at the airport, would he? <laughs> uh, I'm thinking probably not. Good God. Probably <laughs> Not. So, according to uh, some friends of his parents who were interviewed in exile in Paris, um, exile because of the whole Russian Revolution thing, uh, Roman was a terror to his fellow pupils and his masters, and several of his pupils' mothers forbid their sons from speaking to him. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he got into the habit of, and I, I love this, of throwing his school books out of the window in the middle of lessons, running out after them, and not coming back. So just like he packs it all up, throws it out, goes through the and window, be like, oh, and just gotta go get my stuff, and then just leaves. Goodbye. <laughs> like I, I, I mean, who hasn't like pretended to have to go to the bathroom during a class and then not come back and gone to the dining hall and gotten pancakes? I never did that. I was a good boy. Hey, you wow, you were a loser. <laughs> <laughs> so before Ugh. too long, and this is a big shocker. His mother was politely asked to withdraw him from the school. Easy. Just put him on Adderall or something. <laughs> God. Despite this uh, this humiliation, his family came through for him because his stepfather, Baron Hoynigan Huna, <laughs> who is a horse from uh, Gulliver's Travels, <laughs> wrote a letter to the heads of the Marine Academy at St. Petersburg, which was an even more elite school full of the children of nobility, and training the next generation of imperial leadership. That he wrote a nice little rec letter, be like, can you please take this kid? So, oh. Roman got in, but he didn't take well to its strict military routine. This is a shocker, mm. I know. Wow. His, uh, his disciplinary record shows constant battles with authority. Among his offenses were returning from the holidays with long hair, smoking in bed, smoking on duty, fighting with his classmates, talking back to teachers, and most damning of all, skipping gymnastics. Oh, no! <laughs> Smoking while doing gymnastics. <laughs> In bed. With long hair. <laughs> I knew some people who did that in college. <laughs> so before long, he ended up racking up 25 disciplinary citations and withdrew rather than be expelled. Wow, 25... I mean, when you're when you're that cool, you know, with long hair, doing gymnastics while smoking in bed, like they they rack up quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's quite a count there. Yeah, I mean, high score. So fortunately for uh, for young Roman Ungarn, the Russo-Japanese War rolled around in 1904 and distracted Roman from whatever diabolical course he would otherwise have undertaken. He volunteered as an ordinary soldier since the whole officer school thing hadn't gone too well. And mm -hmm. I think you've covered the Russo-Japanese War before. Is that correct? I don't, If we have, it was very brief. Because they sailed that Navy like all the way around the world and it got sunk as soon oh, as yeah, it got that, there. That was a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're not going to get into it here, but needless to say, it did not go well for the Russians. In fact, it was mm. a humiliating series of defeats generally by Japanese forces who were outnumbered. So the Russians just, yeah, completely got yeah, ste steamrolled by smaller armies. 
And yeah, why don't you just give us the 22nd version of what happened with that fleet? Uh, James covered that, but basically they were these really paranoid Russian sailors who thought they kept seeing Japanese boats in like Russian waters and kept opening fire and ended up like blowing each other up and it took them forever, like a year. Because they were sailing actual... all the way around from the North Sea to the Pacific, right? Right, so they had to go around Africa and when they finally got there, um, I, I mean, they got the... They got their asses handed to them, that's for sure, but I think it was largely because they shot at each other again. <laughs> so, yeah, <clears throat> it didn't go Not well. good. <laughs> so, although Rahman only arrived uh, towards the end of this war, his brief experience on the front seems to have been extremely transformative for our long-haired, smoking bed gymnast. Um, <laughs> he actually started to learn discipline and to follow orders and abide by military routine, which he had certainly never done while he was in school. By the end of the war, he had actually been promoted to corporal, and uh, he'd also, interestingly, gotten a great respect for the Japanese opponents, and he actually writes in his letters about the skill and courage of the Japanese. But the most important takeaway from this was that he had been introduced to the Far East, which would become very important later on. Now, I feel like he isn't the only one who developed this respect for the Japanese um, as an opponent in warfare. I feel like I've I seem to remember reading lots of accounts of people being like, wow, they're like really dedicated to their cause and they're really good soldiers, that sort of thing. Is that in line with your reading? Uh, yeah, I think it's general. I mean, the Japanese are good at war, and I think that's usually <laughs> <Were>. been recognized. <laughs> Were now, well, the less said about modern Japan, the better. True. Yeah. So around the time he returns from this war, another blow was delivered to his spirit. Back in Russia, the system that Ungarn had volunteered to defend, the whole society of Imperial Russia, was kind of falling apart. Uh, under pressures from urbanization, secularization, and radicalism, the old imperial order was beginning to crack. And this culminated the first time, culminates again later, but this culminates the first time in the Revolution of 1905, which was widespread social unrest and violence in m much of the Russian Empire, and it led to the destruction of many estates and the murders of nobles by angry mobs and such. And among the estates destroyed was that of his stepfathers, the one that he had grown up on. And its name was really hard to pronounce and had way too many vowels, so we're not even going to worry about it. I left it out. But it's the one he grew up on, and it gets burned down by peasants. Yep. Hmm. Rough day. So That's this rough. seems to have affected him quite deeply um, and also really stepped up the sort of anger issues and the disgust towards peasants and those whom he considered his inferiors. Because, you know, he are, he didn't like listening to teachers because they were his inferiors. And now people who are in a very real social sense, his inferiors have gone and burned down his childhood home. So combine that with the already kind of frail mental state he probably had because of, you know, rock dad. And it's just it's not good. It's not good. Well, it, social class is something that is, uh, it's something that was much more, I don't know if you would call it apparent back in the day. There were things like, oh, you just, you, if you're a peasant, you just don't talk to the nobles, right? That's just not what you do. You have a station, you don't go out there and talk to them. Nowadays, of course, we all think of ourselves as, you know, at least equal under the law. So we believe now, that these now, things. Now our elites pretend to be peasants. Exactly, exactly. I'm just like different. everybody else, he says from his jet. 
<laughs> well, really, that that does seem to be the thing. I mean, didn't you? I know I told you that Hillary Clinton has a podcast, and I just discovered this. But also, Tulsi Gabbard's starting one. I'm not talking about politics. Everyone's just trying to get in on the podcast zone now because it's a way to look like you're, you know, peasant class like us. If I and don't hear the crunch sneer. of Doritos on Hillary Clinton's podcast, the whole thing is just performative nonsense. And it's not real. <laughs> you have to have yeah. the crunch of Doritos, the click of a monster can opening. Yeah, the sound of someone dragging Vaping. on a vape or lighting a cigarette. <laughs> exactly. It's not a real podcast Otherwise, without it's, that. It's not a real podcast. Yeah. No, I can say that from a, from a point of certainty, that if you're not eating or consuming something like two inches from your microphone, you're not you're not a real podcast. And I, we can only presume that since Hillary Clinton doesn't want to eat a baby on the air. Oh, man. She'll anyway. just let Nancy Pelosi do it. Do <laughs> Anyway, so I'm sorry. Where were I'm we? Sorry. Where were we? 1906. We were 1906. Yes. So in 1906, um, Roman transferred from military service to the Army Academy in St. Petersburg. The Navy Academy hadn't worked out too well, so we're going to try the Army one. And while okay. studying logistics, military engineering, and small unit tactics, Ungarn was also beginning to develop his interest in more esoteric matters. He read widely on he read widely on Buddhism, uh, which perhaps may have been an interest he gained while deployed in the East. Uh, cultism, uh, various studies of religion in general, as well as more traditional Western philosophy and literature. His favorites were apparently Dostoevsky and Dante. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he began to develop into, and this uh, this this uh, title was for, I took from a historian. An intelligent but narrow-minded autodidact. What does that mean? An autodidact, autodidact is someone who teaches themselves. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Complete with contempt for the intelligentsia and a fervent belief in his own findings and reasoning. I'm beginning to sense uh, he believes himself, I mean, perhaps rightly so, but he believes himself to be pretty much the, the smart boy, right? He's the one who takes things seriously, looks into them. Um, he's better than all the peasants, perhaps better than his elite friends. I can see that. He probably had a podcast. He definitely had a podcast. <laughs> so um, I want to just go back to the that uh, one of his topics being occultism, because occultism in general had become a huge thing in Russia around this time possibly mm -hmm. spurred on by the sort of looming end-of-the-world vibe that society was getting from the growing mm -hmm. unrest and dysfunction within the imperial system. And one Russian priest from around this time wrote, and can you read this in a Russian Orthodox priest voice? In bookstore display windows at the train stations, all these books about spiritualism, chiromancy, occultism, and mysticism in general leap out at you. Even the most innocent books are sold in covers decorated with some kind of mystical emblems and symbols which assault the eye. Okay, I can believe that. I mean, because from top to bottom, Russia was getting really, really superstitious and spiritual and occult. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So it's interesting how that always plays out. You have this you have this uh push um towards secularism and atheism and things like that and the response to it is like this even even greater push than usual into the spiritual and occult realm. It's one of my favorite things to look into actually. It's very interesting. Yep. So yep. a um a guy who later became a, an important figure in European occultism Hermann von Kaiserlein, who was actually related to Roman by marriage and had met him, uh, remarked about Roman that he was 
One uh, quote. Oh, I was going to read it. You can you can oh, read go it ahead. if you want. Uh, can one you of do the a most... German accent. I can't do nice. a German accent. Let's see. Um, try one. What is what is a Europe, what is a German occultist man sound like? Von of one of the most metaphysically and occultly gifted men I have ever met. I believe it. <laughs> and I he also feel the magic. he also believed that Ungarn uh, Roman possessed clairvoyant abilities. Ooh. Mm. And apparently, this wasn't it. Wasn't just him. Many people who met Roman apparently came away with the unsettling impression that he could read minds. Hmm. Some scholars, hmm. I mean, who cares what scholars say, but some scholars <laughs> attribute this feeling to his unusual eyes, which were small, deep set and unevenly spaced. There was also something inconsistent about their color and nobody could seem to agree whether they were blue or gray. Okay, that's starting to remind me a little bit of Rasputin. Maybe is, so. Is there, uh, is there something in the magic eyes? Can you be born with magic eyes? I, I wouldn't know. I have I have lame eyes that aren't magic oh <laughs> yeah. next time around the uh that, the old um reincarnation cycle that, you'll maybe that, you'll get some cool eyes <laughs> that face with no magic eyes um oh <laughs> so despite his extracurricular readings uh roman managed finally to pass through an institution without being expelled from it nice yay golf applause <laughs> So, he graduated in the middle of his class, which, you know, for somebody who'd been expelled from multiple schools, or technically not expelled, but forced to leave, uh, right. that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And he began his military service in a Cossack cavalry regiment. So, well, that's a good start. Yep. He was offered the chance to serve in Western Siberia, uh, but, so, you know, relatively close to sort of the Russian heartland. You're like out there, but not like way out there. But right. he was like, nope, and instead chose a regiment stationed near Manchuria. So way, way in the east. Far in the east. Yeah. And he was drawn back to this region by his twin interests in religion and war. Because it would give him the chance to, you know, develop his interests more in uh, Eastern philosophy and occultism and spirituality and mysticism and all that. But it would also be really close to the front lines if war broke out with China or Japan which were, at this point, two likely people Russia might have war with. You know, they just had a war with Japan a little bit ago. Mm, mm, so, he, you know, so he can do his Eastern thing and also be, be ready to go to war. So, you know, makes well, sense. Makes sense. Right. Makes sense. In addition to that, Roman was also attracted to the idea of serving with a Cossack host. So the Cossacks were kind of a weird collection of peoples. Uh, they're the descendants originally, 100 years, like 400 years back, of outlaws and exiles who had fled from civilized life in Poland, Lithuania, and Russia to carve out their own new way of life on the steppes, almost like a modern sort of Mongol horde, sort of vaguely nomadic, itinerant. Um, and there, there were a lot of them. Like, the Soviets kind of murdered most of the Cossacks, but some of the Cossack hordes, or hosts as they were called, uh, were over a million people at some point. Moving across really? the... Moving not... They wouldn't all be in one big mass, but they'd be... Sort of have a political unity that they'd recognize that they're part of ex-Cossack host. Gotcha. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, they're... They're an interesting phenomenon. So the Russians had gradually absorbed the Cossacks into their empire as the Russians pushed east, but they had always allowed them to keep their own territories 
and sort of ruled them autonomously and drafted them for military service with Russian officers to lead them. And so that's what that's what Roman was doing. Gotcha. Yep. So within Roman's Eastern interests was a special fascination with the Mongols, whose warlike nomadic culture contrasted so much with the settled peasants he had come to despise. Additionally, mm. fun fact, he had one branch of distant Hungarian ancestry. That's actually what Ungarn means, means Hungarian. Mm. Um, I didn't know that. But it's a super distant ancestral connection with him. But through that connection, he claimed through some convoluted uh, family trees and reasoning that he was technically descended from Batu Khan and through him to his grandfather, Genghis Khan. Oh, okay. Well, now, all right, here we go. <laughs> yeah. So claiming descent from Genghis Khan, it's good. You should try it. <laughs> it's so, all yeah. the drug. Roman had come to believe that uh, the restoration of order, as he saw it, which, uh, you know, he could sort of saw collapsing around him in the last days of the Russian Empire, would only be possible through what he called cavalry people. That is, Cossacks and Mongols, sort of he's he's drawn to this sort of step horse warrior lifestyle. So he thinks that basically he needs to get a bunch of horse people and go around and set things right in Russia? Sort of. Sort of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That it's only through the... That the... The sort of... The, the people who live in cities and towns in the countryside in Russia are just doomed to failure as society crumbles and society can only be propped up by uh, the intervention of nomadic hordes, more or less. That is an interesting idea. Mm. Yep. Well, yep. we'll see how it plays so, out. The uh, the Cossack host was uh, to which Roman was attached wasn't one of the original 400-year-old ones. It had actually only been founded in 1858, and with only a quarter of a million members was less than a quarter of the size of some of the largest older Western hosts, such as the Don Cossacks, who had over a million members. However, among the... Because Cossacks, as I said, it's Russians and sort of various steppe people. There's not, there's not necessarily one ethnic unity among who are Cossacks. And so this Cossack host did include some genuine Mongols. Really? <laughs> yeah, around 12% of the Transbaikal Cossacks, that's the host, were... Uh, Buryat Mongols. So 12% of 250,000 is that's a lot of Mongols. Yeah, that it that really is. <laughs> so these these Mongols were uh, were Buddhist and they had strong links to their cousins back home in Mongolia and they often returned to Mongolia for pilgrimage or trade and they married Mongolian women and generally had political links with the Mongolian nobility back home. So this is sort of Roman's getting a, a sort of not quite direct but at least an indirect connection to Mongolia now. Well, I mean, he, I guess this is part of the dream, isn't it? Yep, it is. And so those who uh, served with him and knew him, you know, describe how, just how much he was drawn towards Eastern cultures, especially that of the Mongols. In fact, even though he was already had, you know, like five or six languages or whatever, he also learned Mongolian and studied Mongolian uh, customs and culture. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> It seems to me that you, I don't know, it seems like he feels like a like a guy, or at least envisions himself, maybe not feels, but maybe he envisions himself as somebody who is sort of lost amongst his own, and 
perhaps is searching for some kind of almost romantic getaway from a home that's betrayed him. I mean, sounds like a setup for a movie, in my opinion. Yeah, and it probably part of that is probably his own identity as a Baltic German, because we talked about how they're sort of caught between all these different empires. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that, but it's an interesting idea. Anyway, so um, around the same time, uh, he really also worked on his physical skills. He became noted as an excellent horseman, and he apparently earned the respect of the Mongols because of his skill at riding and fighting from a horse, and for being equally adept at using both a gun and a sword. Very good, very good. I'm into this. Yep, yep. He also delved deeper into his study of Buddhism and his esoteric pursuits, and tried to form some sort of Buddhist military order among the officers, which is just so <laughs> wacky that I'm going to let him describe it in a letter oh he wrote. And this is... Go ahead. Full speed uh, ahead. But I can't do German. Well, I mean, he's the Estonian, Russian, German, Baltic, I'll Buddhist I'll man. I'll just read it. I'll just M read it Maybe straight. a scary How voice. That? How about a scary voice? Okay. <laughs> let me mark for scary voice. I'm going to put some weird shit in here. In Transbaikalia, I tried to form the order of military Buddhists for an uncompromising fight against the depravity of revolution. For what? For the protection of the processes of evolution of humanity, and for the struggle against revolution. Because I am certain that evolution leads to the divinity, and revolution to bestiality. I introduced the condition of celibacy, the entire negation of woman, of the comforts of life, of superfluities. Uh, superfluities. I, I can't pronounce it. According to the teachings of the yellow faith. Is that racist? <laughs> <laughs> and in order that the Russian might be able to live down his physical nature, I introduced the limitless use of alcohol, hashish, and opium. I could not organize the order, but I had, but I gathered round me and developed 300 men, wholly bold and entirely ferocious. Now, did he mean to say limitless use of yes. alcohol? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, when I first read it, I thought it, I thought it was like limited. And then I was like, wait, this doesn't make sense with what I read next. That it was like, oh, limitless. Limitless. <laughs> so, yeah, so what we have here is a bunch of supposedly Buddhist officers wandering around the Transbaikal, <laughs> drunk and stoned, and preaching <laughs> the yellow faith, which is that's the, a wonderful picture. That's amazing. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's unclear how much of this actually happened, since oh. it's... It's not mentioned in any other contemporary memoirs, and so Roman's mind may have extrapolated uh, drinking nights with the guys into something a lot bigger. Like, you know, you you know, you know, remember Tuesday nights. Like, there was definitely oh, limitless yeah. use of alcohol, and it's easy to see how once you add in, you know, hashish and opium and already being kind of weird, you can end up with uh, <laughs> having imagined that all this happened. Yeah, you end up around, yeah, I could, you're... <laughs> Yep, that could go poorly. <laughs> Sounds pretty fun, though. So, yeah, uh, go forth and preach the yellow faith. Oh, God. <laughs> so, unfortunately, uh, due to an attempted duel with another officer, Roman had to move elsewhere. Okay. So, 
<laughs> he was deployed <laughs> so even further east, which he oh, probably no. was happy about. Yeah. Um, and his job was patrolling the Manchurian border and fighting Chinese bandits. Fair enough. Don't, I mean, we all love to do that on the weekends. Yeah. And yeah, during his deployments, uh, Rahman was notorious for his heavy drinking, as you could probably imagine from the whole limitless use of alcohol thing. Clearly, yeah. Um, and for his exceptionally bad temper and getting into fights. In one such brawl, his face was scarred when the officer that he was fighting struck him with his sword, leaving him with a distinctive facial scar. Okay, so he's even... Scarier. <laughs> yeah, scarier, exactly. Now, it has been suggested by some scholars, so we're going to ignore it, that the sword blow that caused the scar also caused brain damage, because it was, like, you know, on his head, and that maybe that was part of the root of his insanity getting worse. But it's it's disputed. Not everyone agrees uh, with that, and I mean... I it, mean, he's had it rough all the way up to this point. He yeah, just it's got like, I don't think of... we need to look for another reason. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, he was just fine until he got hit with a sword. It's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> He's kind of... He killed his neighbor's owl, so... Yeah, you know. when he was 12. I mean, who does He doesn't that? fit in very well. <laughs> yeah, and he can't be trusted with scissors. Clearly. So after this fight, he once again had to be moved. Um, so he transferred to the reserves so he didn't have to actually be stationed somewhere which allowed him to just take his own initiative and move to Outer Mongolia to assist the Mongols in their struggle for independence from China. Fair enough. Now, isn't that what we all do when we leave? Isn't that what you did when you left your job? What, move to Outer Mongolia? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's happened at least twice. Yeah, it's 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 the normal solution. Yes. So, yeah. So this was the uh, this was the second time he had left a regiment because of a duel, and the fourth time he had been effectively expelled from an institution following some sort of a disciplinary issue. Well, that's quite a track record, but I don't expect him to stop at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a man, you know, long-haired smoking gymnast cannot be stopped. Right. That's an old that's an old <laughs> Mongolian saying. <laughs> I think I've heard that one when we covered Eastern philosophy. Yes, I remember that. So when Roman arrived in Mongolia, Mongolia had only been independent for two years and was still fighting to secure itself from the Chinese because the Chinese had ruled Mongolia for about three centuries. And eventually, just two years before, Mongolian nobles combined with the theocratic power of the Buddhist temples, which were extremely important in Mongolian society, had come together to free the country from Chinese control and proclaim a new Mongolia, free, strong, and Buddhist. Well, that sounds like something our guy Roman would like. Yeah, he's he's into that. So, mm. the new ruler of Mongolia was the head of that rebellion, uh, the Bogut Khan, which means holy emperor, and the, he was also the head of Mongolian Buddhism. And he becomes a figure of great importance in Roman Ungern's later life. So remember that, the Bogut Khan. Okay. Yep. Uh, previously, before he became the ruler, he was called the Bogod Gegen, which means the Holy Shining One. Mm. Yeah. Pretty serious. Indeed. I, I mean, I like the titles. And he <laughs> yeah. was the, he was the most important, or the sorry, the third most important of the. Uh, they're sometimes called the Yellow Hats. They're these. I can't remember how many they are, but they're the most important figures of. Uh, Mongolian Buddhism, mm. and I think they're reincarnated 
and I didn't want to delve too much into the into the theology of it. But yeah, he's he's one of the most important figures in the religion, and he's also the secular ruler now. Gotcha. Well, I mean, obviously, you don't want to dig too deep into it because you might end up, you know, going to Mongolia and trying to, you know, free it again. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they're independent, but the Chinese don't recognize them as independent and are still constantly trying to, uh, you know, take it back. That's the situation at the moment. Yep. So, and uh, yeah, the, this Bogut Khan, like the uh, the Dalai Lama of Buddhism, was a living Bodhisattva. I don't know how to pronounce the Buddhist terms, yeah. but those are the like reincarnated God people. Um, gotcha. And so he's a living Bodhisattva uh, who had chosen upon reaching enlightenment not to enter the blissful state of Nirvana, which would sort of separate him from everyone, but rather to reincarnate himself constantly to help enlighten other souls. Uh, these people are all often referred to as living Buddhas. Oh, they sound nice. <laughs> yeah, they sound nice. That's actually what this next paragraph is about. Oh, so, perfect. So, uh, Mongolian Buddhism was really big into sacrifice. Um, the Mongolian gods were demanding and unmoved by anything except offerings. Uh, although there were merciful deities in Mongolian religion, they were kind of overshadowed by the less merciful deities. Um, offerings mm. were usually made for the you know reasons like relief from illness, fertility of crops, cursing of enemies, the usual the usual stuff, or diverting uh, yeah, diverting disaster. No, averting disaster. <laughs> Sorry, ah. I can't I can't speak. You're doing um, great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> So, yeah, um, Tibetan Buddhism also makes very distinct, uh, specific distinctions between offerings, which are for worship, which are to honor the enlightened gods, and offerings of propitiation, which may are to keep the unenlightened gods from getting angry. And much of the sort of day-to-day -day religion of the Mongolian Buddhists fell into the second category, basically spiritual payoffs to various male malevolent spirits in a sort of divine protection racket. <laughs> Sounds like indulgence. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that to you. Shut it's up. It's a joke. It's a joke. We're talking about Buddhism. <laughs> okay. So, Soviet accounts would later claim that Roman Ungern was cashiered from the army, so dismissed from the army, and that he was then driven to a life of crime, forming a group of brigands that preyed on Russian and Chinese alike. This doesn't seem to have actually been the case. Apart from the lack of any evidence that he ever was, did this while he was in Mongolia, it also seems like the kind of thing that Ungern would have boasted about if he I had, like, led, led an army of brigands that preyed on Russian and Chinese merchants. Like, he, yeah. he would have told the Mongols about that because they would have thought it was cool. Right. Yeah. Right. And he didn't he wasn't a big fan of the the Russians he might have been robbing. I'm no, because they're yeah. probably you know filthy peasants or merchants or something and not cavalry exactly. warriors. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it probably it's probably this is a huge exaggeration of whatever he actually did in Mongolia at this time. So, among the Russians, claims of Ungern's achievements were also exaggerated. According to one later superior, at this point in his career, he was the commander of the whole cavalry force of Mongolia. Oh. But, basically, there's no trace in the historical record of him actually doing anything in Mongolia this time. So, he seems like he just kind of went there and, like, you know work practiced his Mongolian and, I don't know, maybe beat someone up, but he's he's not really doing anything huge right now in Mongolia. That's interesting that you could have such <clears throat> large claims that are exaggerated and don't exist within the Fake historical news. record. 
fake fake news. news. Mm. Yeah. So, despite, but we left all, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> despite his hope of great accomplishments, Ungarn left Mongolia without having achieved much. But like we said, you know, he'd familiarized himself with the country, the faith and the people, but he hadn't really done anything big. And he didn't really look like he was good at do anything big, like his career ground to a halt. And mostly because he kept getting into fights and it, it's not looking promising for Roman, is it? Not right now. Not right now. Not right but now. then something happens. Oh no! World Is War One. God damn! <laughs> World War One happens, and that was it's kind perfect. of a kind of a big deal. Yeah, you may have heard of perfect it. Perfect for him, though. Yeah, I have heard of it. Talked <laughs> so, about it yeah, once or so twice. <laughs> since he's still technically in the reserves, um, he's mobilized on the 19th of July, 1914, and he is returned to the embrace of his beloved Transbaikal Cossack host. Um, Specifically, the Nerchinsk <laughs> Regiment, which yeah. would have the distinction of fighting in some of the most stupid and bloody actions of the Eastern Front of World War One. That regiment, among its officers, had a casualty rate of 170 percent. How is that even possible? That means that uh, everyone's wounded twice. <laughs> everyone's dead and seven out of ten replacements are also dead. That's horrifying. But obviously, you know, not everyone dies the first time. So it's just that over overall, the number of the number of casualties equals one point seven times what the total officer body is. <sighs> Among That's ordinary horrifying. soldiers, it was two hundred percent. What? And yeah, so this is a rate that was three or four times greater than that for the Russian army in general, which the Russian army was never really noted for being especially protective of the lives of its men. <laughs> Yeah, a continuous problem. So hmm. when you've got a, a casualty rate four times higher than the normal Russian casualty rate, that's uh, that's pretty bad. Yeah, that's exactly where a guy like Ungarn would go, don't you think? Yeah. He Ex just attracts he'd, blood. He'd fit in. He'd fit in. Yeah. So for the Russians, the war began, like the Russo-Japanese War, with great disasters. Um, Ungarn's regiment was part of the infamous March into East Prussia, where General Alexander Samsonov led 150,000 men to ignominious defeat. Mm. So, although the initial Russian invasion panicked the Germans, and raiding by advance guards of Cossacks was depicted in the German press as heralding a new invasion of barbarians from the east, you know, like the Mongols, uh, mm. the entire column was quickly caught in a pincer movement and destroyed. In fact, this was just the second time in history that a smaller army accomplished a complete 360-degree encirclement of a larger army. That's bad. The first That's... was the Battle of Cani with Hannibal. Uh, yes, I was just I was just listening to a podcast about that recently. Yep. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, General von Hindenburg did it again. Well, good job, Hindenburg. <laughs> so, yeah, the uh, 30,000 uh, Russians were killed, including one of Ungarn's cousins, Friedrich Ungarn Sternberg, who died charging enemy machine guns, and 100,000 more were captured. Of those who took part, only 10,000, that is 1 in 15, made it back to Russia. That's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. But Oof. Ungarn was among those, the, the lucky few who made it back. He would be. So his, uh, his survival was due, it seems, partly to blind luck and partly to an almost suicidal absence of fear. 
Um, as he would show in winning quite a number of medals, he could do things so madly heroic that the enemies would often pause in sheer astonishment. <laughs> well. So perhaps it was this very visibility that let him live among the mass slaughter. It, it may have been harder psychologically to fire at a man who was so determined to be shot at. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Ungarn was happy. He loved the war. He'd finally found something that he was good at. And he was just all about running straight at machine guns and, you know, just jumping into trenches and just doing all this stuff and somehow not dying. That's, oh man. He's he's invincible. He's a super yeah. soldier, the first of his kind. They had the technology, and it was in the east. It came from Agartha. There you go. There's your tie-in. Ha ha. Perfect. Ah. Perfect. And yeah, and he wrote he wrote a lot of letters about this. He was having a great time. He was having a great time. Good for him. So as the German forces pushed into the Baltic in 1915, many of the Baltic Germans collaborated with the Germans. Not exactly surprising, and were rewarded with positions of power in the new administration. Um, and among the central powers, there were a lot of descendants of Baltic Germans who had actually fled in the generation previously because the Russians were trying to make them more Russian and less German. And they were very, very, they were sort of allowed the Baltic German lobby really wanting Germany to uh, take back all the Baltic German lands. Right, yes. But, I think I've heard of this. <laughs> but Ungarn uh, apparently just. He never seems to have any loyalty to the other Baltic Germans, uh, despite, you know, literally being German. Um, he's all about the czar. He is all about the czar. He he liked the Germans, but he was very loyal to the czar. He really liked the sort of author authoritarian militaristic monarchy that Germany represented. And he was sort of had as one of his personal heroes, Frederick the Great of Prussia, one of the great, you know, conquerors of the early modern period. Right. But for Ungarn, Germany sort of lacked the spirit of Russia, and that spirit to him was its connection to the East. That's what uh, he viewed as being what made Russia unique, was its sort of vague Easternness, because they're next to, you know, the Mongols and all that. Hmm. And he, he's all about that. So his Literally radical centrist. <laughs> yeah. His... Um, his later uh, battles when he was fighting against the Bolsheviks were for him, you know, a matter of just black and white uh, good against evil. But for him, uh, World War One wasn't really at all idealistic um, because he didn't dis he didn't dislike the Germans. He just viewed this as a war and war is what he did. He wrote in a letter that life is the result of war and society is the instrument of war. To refuse war means to refuse an epic life. I mean, he's not wrong. So, yeah, he's sure. he's a big fan of, of war. Definitely. Yeah, big fan. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, war brings out the, the sort of the real man. It sweeps away all the lame stuff of civilian life, you know, like a bad military record, alcoholism, social failures, you know, things that things that he kind of had. Sure. Fighting for something in a life and death struggle sort of makes everything else seem small by comparison. It does tend to wipe away the you know, the difficulties that some of these characters that we cover are facing up until they discover that their place is, uh, is on the line. <laughs> exactly. Uh, seen exactly. it again and again. Yep. So yeah, and he was, he was born for this life, especially as a horse soldier, which he, he loved. But unfortunately, World War I was the time when cavalry really was becoming obsolete, and that was being pretty brutally, you know, driven home that 
cavalry doesn't really have the pivotal role it used to have with, you know, barbed wire and trenches and machine guns. Um, and horses are just as fragile as soldiers are, as the Russians found out, because they lost half, or actually probably more than half, of their very carefully trained war horses in the first three months of World War One. Uh, that's a shame. So yeah, nevertheless, you know, Ungarn remained convinced to the end of his life that cavalry was super, super important. And perhaps this was because he discovered one of the few remaining practical uses for cavalry, which are guerrilla warfare. And he, he liked that, you know, very Mongol-like riding around on a horse. And so he was often assigned to special raiding parties striking deep inside enemy lines, which, you know, required a lot of bravery and speed and decisiveness, qualities which he could, you know, display on the battlefield. And he could also sometimes get through patrols because he was able to pose as a German because he was a German. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's useful. <laughs> yeah, look at that. And yeah, this type of warfare was a lot more common on the Eastern Front than on the Western Front, uh, probably because it's a bigger area with less population. So the Western Front is very, very you know, static. Like you just have straight lines for hundreds of miles of where the front is. On the Eastern Front, there's a lot more sort of ambiguity and cloudiness to the how the battlefield looks. I suppose that's to be expected because everybody on the Western Front was fighting like Westerners. <laughs> yep. So during this time, uh, he actually gets wounded five times. Um, nice. But apparently doesn't slow down because he keeps, after getting wounded, keeps returning to service and getting wounded again. And uh, he sends a nice little gift home to his mother, which is his coat riddled with bullet holes and stained with blood. Oh. Which That's kind of a weird thing, but, you know, it's one that demonstrates what's important to him. And I think he probably thought it was a really thoughtful gift. Like, be like, yeah, yeah look, look how badass I am. I, I wouldn't send it to my mother. <laughs> I mean, who else Maybe does he? You who, would. Else, who else does he have? Like, um, I don't know. Could he have sent it to one of those bodhisattvas out out there in the east? I wonder what they do with that. He is not enlightened. <laughs> I wonder how long mail would take from you know Russia, Western Russia, all the way to Mongolia. Probably a long time. Good long post, while, but post, the bodhisattvas, they're, you know, they're way up there above time, so they don't that's care. That's true. If they, if they die, they'll just be incarnated and get it to get the package next time. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Roman also won the Cross of St. George, which is one of the most prestigious. Actually, I think it is the most prestigious Russian military medal. His was only fourth class, so it wasn't like the super high one, but it's still a very prestigious medal. And, yeah, he won that for his sort of daring scouting of enemy positions. Um like, I think at one point he's, like, hiding in a tree, like, literally a hundred feet from the enemy lines watching them. Like, it's also, he, he's loving this stuff. He's loving this stuff. It's perfect for him. Yeah, and he, he earned four other medals as well. Um, but the Cross of St. George was the one that had a real special place in his heart, and after he received it, he always wore it. That's actually the one he's wearing in that picture I showed you. That's what I was going to ask. I figured that's what it was. Yep. So, unfortunately, uh, old habits die hard, and he ended up spending two months in a military prison for a drunken fight he picked with another officer. Hmm. So, you, some things never change. But after his release from the military prison in January of 1917, he was transferred to the Army Reserves. But, as you can imagine, being away from the front was not to his liking. 
doesn't really fit with his personality. Yeah, not really. <laughs> so he called in some favors. I don't know how. I don't know who owed him favors, but he calls in some favors and gets a transfer to Vladivostok in the Far East, where he then manages to get assigned to return to fighting on different front down in the Caucasus. So, you know, modern day Armenia, Georgia, all that. Oh, um, got it. Yeah. And so he came up with this idea under which he would organize Assyrian volunteers to serve with the Russian army and uh, sort of provide a auxiliary and also hopefully a good example to the Russian troops who were being very, very demoralized. Because, you know, this is on the eve of the Russian Revolution. The war's gone badly. And so he's hoping if he can, like, get these volunteers in the Caucasus, these Assyrians, and, like, make them into an enthusiastic little army corps, he can kind of revive the Russian troops in that region. I'm just going to say, like, I can't imagine anybody reviving the morale of the Russian army at this point in history, <laughs> any section, or even getting them amped to go, you know, to carry on at all. But hey, I admire the, I admire the effort. Yep. Yep. Gotta respect it. I respect it. So yeah, um, he kind of succeeded. Um, his Assyrian volunteer troops did actually get some minor victories over the Turks, because in the Caucasus, you're fighting Turks, not Germans. Um, I mean, these weren't big victories. These were like tiny little things, but still, it, it, it was a successful experiment. And so, he got permission uh, for a plan to do the same thing, except with Mongols. Uh, make a Mongol volunteer army to shore up Russia's eastern frontier. Comments? Well, I was going to say he'd be very good at that, wouldn't he? Uh, he does have some unique qualifications. I was going to say, he's very... He's, he, he likes the Mongols, and it seems that the Mongols like him a little bit. And he's a descendant in, of Genghis Khan. Allegedly. And he's a, he's a descendant of Genghis Khan, so, you know... Um, obviously. <laughs> yep. He looks just like him. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's all coming together. Oh, yeah. So, off, uh, off our boy goes to Siberia, and thence to Mongolia. Unfortunately, there was some stuff happening at this time. Uh, oh, Aaron, dear. what happened in Russia in 1917? I think there was some kind of, like, wheel that turned around. Um, it was, like, re revolving something. Yeah. There was some kind of rev revolution. Yes. Revol uh, that's it. Yes. Yeah, so the Russian Revolution was happening, and... The Tsar ends up being forced to abdicate. And once he was forced to abdicate, he is replaced at first by a provisional democratic government led by a nobleman named Kerensky. But this uh, this new government, which was supposed to be sort of a temporary thing until they could have like a big constitutional convention and figure out what Russia was going to do, was doomed from the start because one of their yeah. big sticking points is that they refused to end their side of World War One, which was going pretty catastrophically bad for them. They wanted to keep the war going against the Germans while they decided what their, you know, government was. Yeah, you don't really have a lot of time to fight about that one, especially when you've got a revolution on your hands of people who are really not happy about this war. They're like, okay, we're going to change things, but the one big thing, you know, the, the war thing, that's going to have to keep going on. People are just like, what are you talking about? Wow, it's just it's just like America. No, the war just don't, has to keep going on. Don't you dare. All right, carry on. Carry on. Okay, so where where were we? Yes, the Russian We've been really good happening. about not making political jokes so far. So, uh, um, between March and November of 1917, 
it's kind of unclear where Roman is. I wasn't able to track him down. Um, he traveled with his military superior, whose name was Zemyanov, in the Transbaikal at one point in there. He's apparently there. But it also seems like he may have returned to Estonia to visit his family one last time, which is nice. That'd be nice. Yeah. It's also possible that he was involved in the abortive coup attempt in St. Petersburg that August, which was led by the Cossack general Lavor Kornilov. And one of Kornilov's big grievances in his coup attempt was that the provisional government had abolished capital punishment in the military. And since Ungarn seemed to really, you know, seems like with seems like the type of guy who would be upset if they took capital punishment away. So right. I can imagine him participating. If we can't shoot people who are fleeing, then what can we do? <laughs> yeah, so it's possible he was involved in that, but it's it's unclear. By uh, early November, that vaguely centrist Kerensky government was toppled by everyone's favorite, the Bolsheviks. I love them. So we don't really have time to do a whole rundown of the Russian Revolution, but I think everyone knows the highlights. Uh, and it wasn't pretty. We did cover uh, we did cover it tangentially with the Rasputin episode. Um, so if you want to go back and look at that, I recommend that. Yeah. And as you can imagine, Roman was not a fan of all this. Um, as we've already established, Roman disliked pretty much everyone, and that everyone included Jews, Jews, okay. peasants. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm just reporting the news. Um, and it is a fact that Jews were very visibly represented in this new Bolshevik order, particularly in the person of Leon Trotsky, whose real name was Lev Bronstein. So yeah, Roman already didn't like Jews, didn't like revolution, and now they're Jews leading a revolution, so he's very upset about all and this. And I will, I will point out, we did point that out when we covered Trotsky. Um, <laughs> it's just hard to talk about because it's one of those things that, like, you don't want to talk about it's a it's an ugly fact of history that there was a lot of this uh hey and stalin started to get upset about it later on too but well we won't go into that because that's that was later yeah so anyway um roman's feelings about the bolsheviks were clear they were anti-religious anti-monarchist riddled with these evil jews they were also like in their propaganda at least were all about the peasants we know they weren't really all about the peasants they mostly murdered and starved the peasants and these were actually a bunch of nerds from universities but at <laughs> least in their propaganda they were all about the peasants and roman doesn't like peasants either does he no he doesn't like anybody so this is like Except almost Mongols. perfect for him <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and they also are all about seizing land from the aristocracy and you know he had some bad memories of you know his childhood home being burned down by peasants so yeah. like this is just the antithesis of everything he holds dear yeah well. and even worse they signed the bolsheviks that is signed the treaty of brest litovsk which surrendered much of western russia to the germans including all the areas he had been fighting and getting shot in for four years Hmm. So he's not exactly happy, right? There's a lot of reasons for him to to not be happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's there. So uh his commander, Semyonov, and Roman declared their allegiance to the Romanovs and vowed to fight the revolutionaries. And these two, Semyonov and Roman, 
Ungarn, even though they were, you know, fervently anti-Bolshevik, were not really typical of the leadership of the anti-Bolshevik, what's called the White Army movement. Um, they didn't recognize the authority of Admiral Kolchak, who was the supposed leader of the White Army in Siberia. Rather, they just sort of acted independently and did their own thing. They pr This is disputed how much of this, but they seem to have gotten some support from Japan in terms of arms and money, because Japan was really worried about the Bolshevik revolution spreading. And well, so I mean, they were obviously <laughs> so they were willing to, to send a couple, you know, dollarinos their way. Or, oh, good. Um, and yeah, and Kolchak especially was not liked by Roman because he was not a monarchist. And he had promised that after the victory of the White Army over the Bolsheviks, they would reconstitute the Constituent Assembly, which had been disbanded by the Bolsheviks, which was supposed to decide the future of Russia, including the question of whether or not to restore the Tsar. Hmm. So Roman didn't believe any of that crap. Um, right. He believed that the Tsar was accountable only to God and that monarchy was the political system that God had chosen for Russia, and so it was self-evident that it should be restored to the way it had existed, not only before the Bolshevik Revolution, but before the October Manifesto of 1905, which was a series of concessions that the Tsar made after that whole uprising that burnt down Roman's childhood home. You know, I feel like every time we deal with Bolsheviks or communists or whatever, there's always these similar uh, little little problems that pop up during the revolution of like somebody's a conservative but they're not quite you know monarchist or they they're not on board with the you know with the the provisional government that's trying to figure things out in the meantime it's like you've either you get these spots like in romania where there's like this clear like you're either straight up uh, a communist or you're a straight up nazi and you have to pick and then there's all these other people who are like don't get extreme and they just get steamrolled every time <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, uh, the middle's not necessarily a great place to be. Yeah. Not at this time, that's for yeah. sure. <laughs> so, most of the uh, white army leaders like Kolchak, you know, they were generals and admirals and super important people, but uh, Zeminov and Roman were both junior officers. So, their plan to sort of on their own raise a regiment to fight the Bolsheviks was really ambitious. Um, but they no problem for them and Unfortunately, they didn't really have any way to go about this. Uh, their resources were very limited. They had no money, no troops, and they currently had six men. <laughs> that's that's not very many. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so they... During this uh, time, Zemianov was doing negotiations with the Mongols, and the, specifically the Buryat Mongols, and mm. he did eventually persuade them to go along with his scheme and let him recruit men, and in theory, he had about 600 men who were able to be mobilized, um, but he didn't have them yet. He just sort of had permission to eventually get 600 men. Um and so it's so still like an just IOU. <laughs> yeah, it's still just Seminov, Roman, and six dudes. So, just across the uh, the Chinese border from Mongolia in Manchuria was the uh, important junction of Man Manchuria, which sounds way too much like Manch Manchuria. It's kind of confusing, and the Russian Chinese border is kind of constantly moving around, so it's really confusing. But there's a Russian garrison there, even though it's technically. A across the Chinese border. Um, 
And the Russian garrison there was an open mutiny because of the revolution. They were already setting up revolutionary tribunals to try their officers as well as local railway officials because the railway was basically the only thing in this town. So I guess that's who you put on trial. And the (laughs) the Chinese commander there, because there's also a Chinese commander, even though there's a Russian garrison, because as I said, it's a really confusing place, who was Major General Gan, had been ordered to disarm them, but... Didn't like the uh, potential diplomatic consequences if things went badly and, you know, the shooting started and also didn't have that many men because there were like 1500 people in the Russian garrison. Um, So he's he's not really sure how he's going to go about disarming them, which is what he was supposed to do. So Semyonov catches a train down and invites the commander and his subordinates to a dinner and proposes that he as a Russian officer should disarm the troops without bloodshed. He Could also work. sort of implies he has an army, when in reality he has six men. Oh, okay, so it's a bluff. <laughs> but uh, Major General Gan gratefully agrees and offers to, you know, help if he can. But this is just sort of a sign of the confusing status of everything and the breakdown of the Russian military authority, that Zeminov is getting permission from a Chinese officer to disarm a Russian mutiny. Like, it's it's very confusing. Um, Hmm. So he now at least has permission, technically, but he has no men to back up his plan. So he tells the uh, the station master to put together a troop train and to send it back to Daria, which is uh, where Ungarn is waiting and the six dudes to retrieve his regiment. And along with the train, he sends one of his Cossacks with a message for Roman that he should grab whoever he could in Daria, light up the train as though there were soldiers on it, like, you know, put lots of lamps in it and maybe some wow. cardboard cutouts in the windows. We just talked about this. <laughs> and come back to uh, Manj, whatever that place was. I so, approve of this Home Alone style plan. <laughs> yep. And so... Uh, this and the Ungarn gets this message, and this is his first sort of recorded action in this Siberian counter-revolution. With one of the six men, he has one assistant, he was sent to ensure the cooperation of Captain Stepanov, who is the chief of the railway militia in this town, in disarming the mutinous troops. When Ungarn declared that the three of them together were going to go disarm two full companies, Stepanov laughed in his face and said he was going home. According to Semenov's memoirs, Ungarn promptly hit him in the stomach with the scabbard of his sword and told him he was going nowhere. Uh-oh. So yeah, Stepanov actually, on his own, later becomes a notoriously ruthless sort of guerrilla leader in the war. And so the fact that, uh, you know, Baron Roman just immediately terrifies him really is a testament to the the aura that uh ungarn has he does have those magic eyes yeah with his just sort of very very violent aura that people are scared of so he shows up with his one cossack and stepanov and some random dudes they gathered up and put on the train he gets off ungarn gets off the train and says all right everybody hand in your weapons and the Mutinous soldiers start to comply, and within a few hours, they had disarmed 1,500 men and packed them onto a train to send them back into Bolshevik territory. What? That's commanding presence. A terrifying presence. Whatever that perk is. So yeah, the the counter-revolution in Siberia began with uh, eight men and a colossal bluff. And magic eyes. Don't forget the magic eyes. And magic eyes. eyes. 
So, um, in response to this success, Roman received the rank of Major General. I'm not entirely sure from whom, because there's not really a military hierarchy this time, so I, I don't really know how he became Major General. I think he and Semyonov just decided he was Major General now. That could work back then. That's how chaotic things were. <laughs> yeah. And he's entrusted by Semyonov, who's still technically his superior, with forming some fresh military units to battle the Bolsheviks. So their troops still only numbered in the hundreds, but they were one of the only organized armies in the whole region because there were numerous little Bolshevik Soviet councils and units and, you know, mutinous troops and stuff, but they're not really effectively mobilized and coordinating together. They're just all kind of doing their own thing and there's no chain of command. So even though they don't have very many troops, they're still sort of in the best shape at the moment. Gotcha. And the since it's, you know, a civil war, it's also people aren't really sure what side they're on mm -hmm. as it's happening. And so that that chaos presents an opportunity. So Zeminov and Ungern had three clear advantages. They were very ambiguously anti-Bolshevik. They knew what side they were on and could tell people what side they were on, as opposed to like, you know, if you're some garrison commander who's sort of mutinied and maybe killed your superior, but you don't really know what side you're on. Like, mm. it's confusing. It's hard to recruit people when you don't know what side you're on. Now, you said they were ambiguously anti-Bolshevik. Unambiguously. Un yeah. Sorry. Okay. Unambiguously anti-Bolshevik. Yeah. I think they could just say, yeah. That's worth making clear because that ended up being the position of a lot of little groups like this during yeah. any kind of revolution. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they were unambiguous about what side they were on. They were organized and they had a you know simple plan. We're going to kill Bolsheviks, basically. Um, OK, when they recruited, they asked three questions of their recruits. One, do you believe in God? Two, do you refuse to recognize the Bolsheviks? Three, will you fight them? Mm. Well, that's that's pretty a simple, clear. That's a simple form to fill out. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> this this new army they created was called the Special Manchurian Division since it was formed in Manchuria. So naturally Roman immediately starts creating units of Mongols because, you know, what what else is he going to do? Back in the town of Daria, which is where he had actually been stationed previously, he formed the Volunteer Asiatic Cavalry Division, which was composed of Russians, Buryat Mongols, Tatars, Bashkirs, other Mongols, Chinese, Manchu, some Poles, and pretty much anyone who was around. It was an extremely multi-ethnic cavalry force. Interesting. Hmm. And so he but, but they all do, they all believe in God and they all hate Bolsheviks, and that's all you need. <laughs> yep. And so the town of Daria becomes his first sort of stronghold, and he uses it as a base to attack the disorganized Red forces and raid caravans and stuff, and. It's a it be, in Bolshevik propaganda. It becomes kind of a Dracula's castle type scenario. It's filled with the bones of his victims and whatnot. And he did kill a lot of people um, who were either communists or they also rounded up criminals and killed them. That kind of thing. But it definitely takes on sort of an aura in Bolshevik propaganda of being probably scarier than it was. Yeah, and also, I mean, it does remind me uh, who was the guy in in. Um in the Romanian episode. I can't remember who it was. Antonescu? Kind of a similar uh, yeah. vibe of like... Was Did Antonescu have... Ion Antonescu was a Romanian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did he, he, have, he, did he have the magic eyes, though? 
He didn't have magic eyes, and he didn't... I don't think he filled a castle full of the bones of his victims, but he... the At least the propaganda around him, and even the vibe of some of his own writings, they're just like, this... this is... this person is like a werewolf. Like, this, they can go into this zone where they're just ready to kill anybody who threatens I think that, them. I think that Ungarn is always in that zone, though. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's why I'm saying Antonescu's not exactly like him, but when yeah. I read about... <laughs> when I read about Antonescu, I got a similar vibe of like, oh, this is... this is like, uh... I don't want to say outright a monster, but yeah, it's like a werewolf. <laughs> There's a side there. Yep. Oh, God. So on New Year's Day, uh, 1918, uh, Zemianov's army with Ungarn at the front uh, crossed back into Russia from Mongolia. And of course, Ungarn knew this territory very well, you know, the woods and the rivers and whatnot, because he'd been stationed here when he was in the military. And on the 12th of January, he pushed another 60 miles into Russia and took the small settlement of, I love this name, Olovianaya. Nice. Um, and was able to sort of commandeer a bunch of munitions and supplies before then uh, retreating when they were counterattacked by, uh, by Bolsheviks. And so this is sort of his method. It's scrappy, low-key fighting. Uh, the number of troops involved, you know, rarely exceeds 100, 150 on either side, and they're quick to retreat before things get too, too bad. You know, when, you're, you, when you have a really small unit, you don't want to commit to pitch battles, Right. Right. Yeah. And you think about the types of troops he's leading, <clears throat> Mongols, they're really good at sort of cavalry skirmishes, right? You know, busting in and then disappearing again with, uh, you know, with ammunition and guns and stuff. It's perfect. It's a match made in heaven. Yeah. And they're also Mongols, so they're scary, uh, with the result that, you know, a lot of times the Bolshevik units wouldn't really put up much of a fight and just kind of like, oh, the the, the Mongols are raiding again. We're just going to hunker down inside until they steal some stuff and leave again. They need to go back to studying the dialectic of the Mongol. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So and it's also winter and nobody likes to fight a pitched battle in the snow. You yeah. Know? So mm -hmm. there's just not there's not a lot of a. Uh, of real combat, mostly just sort of skirmishing and raiding and long distance shooting at each other to not much effect. And for the, for the moment, um, Roman, despite, you know, his sort of brutal reputation is, you know, like taking prisoners and letting people surrender and shipping them off back to Bolshevik territory if they surrender. So like, you know, he's not just wholesale slaughtering people. Sure. Sure. Though we know he wants to, right? <laughs> well, I mean, he does have the scary eyes. Yeah. And the Bolsheviks, you know, they have a they have a way of exaggerating <laughs> sometimes. Yep. So by mid-January, uh, Roman held about 200 miles of this very important railway that goes through this region. But he's running out of supplies, and he's having difficulties in the in the rear where they're sort of getting raided a lot by you know little Bolshevik battalions and whatnot. So fortunately, Roman had become an expert at managing mutinous garrisons early in 1918. In the uh, Russian quarter of the Manchurian city of Hylar, he disarmed a group of revolutionary soldiers who outnumbered him three to one. He captured them while their leaders were immersed in an ideological debate about Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, he spends two hours going around disarming the soldiers and confiscating their weapons while their officers are debating the dialectic for two hours. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's it. Uh, that's, that reminds me of Death of Stalin when Shukov comes in and starts taking people down and they're like still arguing and shit. Yeah. Good movie, but 
I can so, just yeah, imagine the scene. Takes their weapons, packs them onto trains, and sends them back to bullshit. I think territory. we did that once in college, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Almost certainly. <laughs> So around this time, uh, Rahman also used his special skills and was able to negotiate a peace treaty between two Mongol tribes who had been warring for years. And it was, and as a result, he was able to recruit troops from both of them for his army. So look, look at this. He's a peacemaker, a man of peace. Can you hear me? Yes. I I'm trying to use my mute button because, because there's apparently a horde of Mongols upstairs <laughs> right now. Um, oh, gotcha. Yeah, so my apologies in advance. Please carry on. So yeah, so Ungarn was given command by Semenov of about 250 horsemen from these new Mongol recruits. And after helping to put down yet another mutiny by some random garrison, because nobody knows who the government is or whatnot, everyone's kind of, you know, mutiny they went on to occupy another uh, important train station in Mongolia that was occupied by the Chinese. Because remember, the Chinese don't, recognize Mongolia's independence and it's it's a confusing thing but unfortunately the Chinese who had grown increasingly nervous about the activities of Rahman sprung a trap he was invited to lunch by the commander of the Chinese garrison but then was held prisoner and his troops were disarmed when they showed up for lunch which is just mean um, <laughs> yes, that is very there was, there, there was no lunch, I guess. But uh, so Semyonov uh, quickly responded by constructing a fake armored train using a dummy howitzer placed on a platform car and half covered with a tarpaulin. And so, you know, using like cardboard and wood and stuff to make it look like this is an armored like tank train with guns. And then he rolls that into town and demands the Chinese commander release Ungarn and the Mongols, which they do. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, this is a pretty remarkable war, honestly. Yeah, I'm not bored yet. Yep. So by February, unfortunately, the Soviets had rallied. Um, they'd, you know, realized that they were super disorganized and that was really taking its toll on them. And so they hold a pan-Siberian Congress and get all these sort of separate little units and garrisons together uh, to all sort of make a plan together. And they appoint a leader... Uh, Sergei Lazo, whose mission is to drive Semyonov and Roman out of the Transbaikal. They had more men and better arms than Semyonov's forces, especially now that they're actually all together and not operating independently, and they're able to easily force them out of the towns that they had taken in January, because Semyonov and Roman, you know, they don't have the troops for, like, a sieges and stuff. They don't have the type of supplies you need for that. They're guerrilla fighters, more or less. Right, right. So by March, their army, that the Special Manchurian Division, was cornered by the Bolsheviks and was beaten a couple times. Fortunately, however, they were saved by the Chinese army, which really didn't like this whole civil war thing happening right on its border and kind of intervened and enforced an armistice and made the army separate because the Chinese have an actual army there. And so these two sort of little armies are forced to go to opposite sides of the room. Well, whatever works. Yep, yep. So, Zeminov and Ungarn both uh, move across the border into Manchuria to look for help and support. And because they know that, you know, now that the Bolsheviks are getting more organized, they're going to need to bring some bigger guns. This was probably pretty hard for Ungarn, given uh, he doesn't really seem to have had great social skills with people. So, you know, going around and trying to enlist help of people who aren't 
warlike Mongol tribesmen was probably pretty difficult. Yeah, he's a little out of practice. But, on the other hand, he does have skill with languages, because, you know, he can speak Mongol, he can speak Chinese. Not great, but he can speak it decently. Um, so, you know, he's got that going for him. And he spends most of that year of 1918 sort of shuttling back and forth along the Manchurian railways, making connections with, uh, you know, local elites and stuff, and trying to garner support for their, uh, their army. Um... In 1919, in July, he actually gets married to a Manchurian princess named G. That's amazing. In an Orthodox <laughs> wedding, which is funny since he's Lutheran because the Baltic Germans are mostly, mostly Lutherans. He's been like a Mongolian Buddhist for like 10 years now, but they have an Orthodox wedding. Like a like a Christian Orthodox? Yeah, like, like a- Russian Orthodox. Oh, oh, okay. That I guess that makes sense. It, it, wouldn't that sort of fall in line with his nationalist tendencies toward the toward the Russians? Yeah, I guess so. Um, perhaps so I don't know. <laughs> Princess uh, G takes on the Russian name Elena Pavlovna, and uh, it's funny. The only because she speaks Manchurian, not Mongol, and Ungarn doesn't speak Manchurian, so they have to communicate in English because that's their only common language. Well, I mean that's. You gotta make it happen somehow, right? Yep, you do do what you have to do. So, uh, around this time, however, the last major white army leader in the East, Admiral Kolchak, was defeated by the Red Army. And that was kind of a, a signal to everyone that the Bolsheviks were going to win. And mm. so... The Chinese withdraw a lot of their troops, and the Japanese, who also had an expeditionary force in the region, because they have holdings on the mainland, also withdraw its troops from the region, because they, like the Chinese, had been sort of a keeping the different sides in balance. But with it being pretty clear the Bolsheviks are winning, they don't want to have, you know, random army stranded over there if they go to war against the Bolsheviks. So everyone's right. withdrawing their troops. Party's so, over. Yep, so Zeminov realizing they're not going to be able to withstand the Bolshevik forces now that they can concentrate on them, since Kolchak was defeated, plans to retreat across the border back into Manchuria and sort of, you know, make a plan for some guerrilla warfare or something there. Ungarn, however, sees this as an opportunity that he can't miss. Uh, An opportunity uh to create something beautiful. What? (laughs) On the 7th of August, um... 1920, he announces that he's no longer uh, following Zeminov. He's setting off on his own and doing his own thing, and he takes that cavalry division he formed, the Asiatic Cavalry Division, and sets them up for guerrilla warfare, you know, traveling light and fast, and moves towards the border of Outer Mongolia, that is, Mongolia that's outside of China. Inner Mongolia is in China. Um, And, uh, crosses the border on October 1st and moves southwest across Mongolia towards the capital city, uh, which was then called Urga, uh, which is what the Russians called it, I think. It's known as Ulaanbaatar, which also has an alarming number of A's in it, which is occupied (laughs) by the Chinese, because remember, the Chinese don't recognize Mongol independence. So he enters negotiations with the Chinese occupation forces, and he demands that the Force disarm and surrender to him, which they don't do because they outnumber him greatly. Right. And for a couple days, 
they try to assault the city, but they don't really have material for a siege, and they're vastly outnumbered and outgunned, and so it doesn't go very well. So Ungarn takes his forces and retreats to um, a more remote region of Mongolia along the Karelen River in a, uh area called Setsin Khan Imog. I don't know know why I put all these names in here, but (laughs) it sets the mood, which is a sort of a more remote district, um, which is ruled by a prince called Setsin Khan in eastern outer Mongolia. And in an area like this, he gets a lot more support by Mongols who want independence from Chinese occupation, especially... He gets support from the spiritual and secular leader of the Mongols, the Bogod Khan, mm. who we talked about, who he was the one who was the leader of this independent Mongolia, which is being occupied by the Chinese. Right, right. Okay. It's all coming so, together. It's all coming together. So he sends Ungarn his blessing for expelling the Chinese from Mongolia. And since he's, you know, the spiritual leader as well, that that carries a lot of weight, right? Right, yeah. So the Chinese, in addition, had tried to tighten their control over Outer Mongolia by strictly regulating uh, Buddhist services and restricting, uh, you know, the activities of the Buddhist monks and imprisoning Russians and Mongols who they suspected of being separatists. So this doesn't exactly endear you to, uh, you know, the local population. Right. So at this point, Ungarn has about 1,500 men while the Chinese garrison is about 7,000 still. So he's still Mm. vastly outnumbered. And the Chinese also, you know, have artillery and machine guns and had built a lot of trenches to protect Urga. So Ungar knows this is going to be a tough fight. Um, But on the 31st of January, they begin moving back towards Urga because he's going to take, he's tried to take the city before and he's going to try again. Well, nothing uh, stops this guy. (laughs) Yep. On February 2nd, they were able to actually overrun the first trenches that the Chinese had set up. Um, I'm not entirely sure how, probably just, you know, some sort of Mongol superpower. I mean, I'd be scared if 1500 (laughs) Mongols were riding down out of the hills at me and I'm just a, you know, Chinese man in a trench. Well, it also, they're also being led by magical eyes, so that's true. That's true. And during this uh, battle, as they begin taking more and more of the city, Ungarn's uh, army rescued the Bogod Khan from house arrest because he's been he's been held in this in this capital by the Chinese, and they transport transport him through the city back to uh, his monastery that he's supposed to live at. So this is, as you can imagine, a big symbolic thing that probably gets a lot of support from the Mongols, right? Mm-hmm. Could see that. So then he uh, still hasn't, you know, taken the whole capital city and is still trying. But he gives uh, gives his soldiers some orders to uh, emulate a tactic that Genghis Khan used and light a bunch of campfires in all the hills surrounding the part of the capital city they don't control, which makes it appear that the whole city surrounded by soldiers when in reality, the Chinese still outnumber him like three to one, four to one, but he has his soldiers making all these campfires. And so it looks like they're surrounded 
by a much larger army, right? Yep, we just talked about this on the psychological warfare episode. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. A little tie in there. Mm. Yep, and so the Chinese are already probably kind of demoralized, thinking they're outnumbered. And Ungarn launches another assault, takes one of their barracks from them. So he's sort of he's gaining the initiative, um, and then he divides his army into two parts. The first launches an assault on the Chinese trade settlement, which was one of the fortified areas that they were held. And the other one moves forward up to the uh, consular settlement, which were the two remaining Chinese strongholds within the city. Upon reaching the trade settlement, Ungarn had his men smash their way in by blasting the gates with explosives and then hitting them with improvised battering rams they'd made from trees. Some of the old tricks never stop working. Yep. After breaking in, uh, it's just this chaotic mass melee because both sides are fighting with their sabers because they're just all packed together in this, you know, confined walled area. And there's not really room to form battle lines and use guns. And so it's just this mass of Mongols and Chinese fighting with sabers. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. And But uh, as is predicted, uh, magic eyes come through and they soon capture the uh, trade district, and then he joins his troops who were already besieging the consular district, and there's briefly a counterattack where they have to withdraw, um, because the Chinese do a counterattack out, but then he moves more troops around, and they attack it from multiple sides, and drive the Chinese out of their last stronghold in the capital city of Mongolia. <sighs> Man, that's a fight for that, that whole thing. Goodness. Yep. So, as the uh, the Chinese retreat, they uh, go into train cars mostly, at least the officers, the important people do, and other people are fleeing on foot. And they also murder all the Mongolians they pass on their way out, which is really kind of mean. <laughs> it's like, it's almost as bad as denying them lunch. Mm -hmm. And also, um, knowing that Magic Eyes was in charge, all the communist sympathizers in the city also fled at the same time as the Chinese. Well, his uh, his reputation precedes him. Mm -hmm. It does. Everyone knows the communist fears the Magic Eye. So during this battle for the city, the Chinese lost about 1,500 men, and Ungarn's forces only suffered about 60 casualties, which is a really good ratio, if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about it pretty hard. I think you're right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So once they take the city, um, they, of course, start, as you do, by plundering the Chinese stores, because, right. you know, when you've driven out an occupying power, what are you going to do? They also start rounding up and executing any Jews they find, because Jews are assumed to be Bolsheviks. There we go. Which we talked about, there were a lot of Jews in Bolshevik leadership. So, uh, some Jews do get uh, permission to not be killed by Ungarn. I'm not sure what the qualification was, but he does give, give uh, orders that certain Jews don't get killed. Sort of like the, the Flems when we did the Watt Tyler episode not too oh long yeah, ago. Oh, yeah, the Flems. They're just rounding the up Flems. the Flems, and they're like, die, you Flemish bastard. And yeah, Not a good time for the Flems. So after a few days later, um, after a few days, uh, Ungarn orders, you know, the city's order to be restored. We're Okay, we're done looting Chinese things and, you know, scribbling graffiti on their walls. Um, but he does form a, a secret police who continue to search for potential communist infiltrators. Hmm. Um, but the city itself is sort of returned to a, a peacetime status. And from there, uh, he sort of 
continues to leapfrog around. He captures the nearest fortified Chinese base to the south, in which he had about 900 troops and the Chinese about 1,500. So he's only outnumbered a little bit this time, so that's no problem. (laughs) Mongol strength. Yep, and from there, they then attack another Chinese base, and this time the Chinese just abandon it without a fight, because uh, apparently they've heard about Magic Eyes and his Mongols. Right, of course. Gotta be careful about those Magic Eyes. They can just blast you with lasers from, you know, 30 yards. Yep. So, when the remaining Chinese troops in Mongolia, who had retreated to northern Mongolia after they were driven from the city... Sort of go around, try to go around the capital to the west to get back to China. It looks like they're, you know, tra- planning to encircle the capital again. And so uh, Ungarn and his Russian and Mongol troops uh, were dispatched to stop the Chinese forces, which numbered several thousand. And he has several hundred with him. And they intercept them as they're going and do a big cavalry charge, you know, with do their Mongol thing. They fight with their sabers and their guns on horses. And when the smoke clears, uh, approximately a hundred of his Mongols and Russians were killed to more than a thousand Chinese killed. He keeps getting these odds, and I just have to keep attributing it to the magic eyes. The magic eyes. And after this, the remaining Chinese forces are in a complete rout and just go, you know, hell for leather towards the border and get back into China. And thus, there were no Chinese forces left in Outer Mongolia. You just gave me a thought. Uh, I feel like Ungar needs his own own podcast, and he could call it Magic Mike. (laughs) Okay. Sorry, my brain is in a very strange place right now. I can tell. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on if we can. Yes, please. So, now that they've driven the Chinese out, Ungarn, along with the Mongolian religious leaders, the lamas and the princes, they bring the Bogd Khan from the monastery back to Urga and have a solemn ceremony where they restore the Bogd Khan to the throne of Mongolia. And well, as that's... a reward for ousting the Chinese from Mongolia, the Bogd Khan grants Ungern the high hereditary title Darkon Koshoi Chinwang in the degree of Khan. Oh, no. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, yes, no. I don't actually know what all this means, but I just wrote it down as I read it. But I heard degree of Khan. That's pretty yes, big, da- right? Darkon Koshoi Chinwang in the degree of Khan. <laughs> Chinwang. It's probably not pronounced like that, but it it should be. <laughs> so, um, anyway, he gets so basically he gets some super important rewards. Um, other officers and you know princes who had participated also receive high titles and awards. You know, independent Mongolia is back, baby. Um, he also gets the rank of lieutenant general from Seminov, who he's not working for anymore. So, <laughs> well, it, it worked last time. Worked. Just it worked him last a- time. Yeah, let's give yeah, yourself a Yeah, because you remember he, he kind of announced he wasn't working for Seminov anymore, but apparently yeah, yeah. Seminov just is still going to promote him, so. It's still like friends. That, it's like that news article about that guy who, like, in Spain who didn't show up for work for 20 years and was still, and just kept being paid. That's he, like, like worked the, for, like, a w- municipal water authority. Yeah, I didn't hear that story, but I did see it in uh, Office Space, so that's another reason <laughs> for you to go watch that. <laughs> So, on February 22nd, 1921, Mongolia was proclaimed an independent monarchy 
Oh, I, I almost skipped something really important. In addition to being Darkon Koshoi Chin Wag in the degree of Khan, uh, <laughs> Roman Ungarn also began to be viewed by some of his Mongolian troops as a reincarnated Buddhist god of war, and also potentially as a reincarnation of Genghis Khan. After all, he's descended from Genghis Khan. Well, obviously, yes. Um, I, I can't really blame them for coming to this conclusion because, you know, he did just save Mongolia. <laughs> and he's got the magic eyes. Magic eyes. Yep. So, Mongolia is proclaimed independent monarchy. Uh, supreme power over Mongolia belongs to, you know, the Bogd Khan, the Holy Emperor. According to some eyewitnesses, such as the Polish adventurer Ferdinand Osendowski, who actually went and visited this independent Mongolia, Ungern uh, instituted order in the city of Urga, or Ulaanbaatar, by imposing street cleaning and sanitation, promoting religious life that had been suppressed by the Chinese, and even introducing religious tolerance, which is interesting. That is interesting. Hmm. And he also apparently tried to modernize the economy a little bit to make it more uh, more efficient. So yeah, ah, he's so he at, brought in Bitcoin. This, look at this reformer. Look at this reformer. <clears throat> so yeah, this Polish guy, um, yeah, went and uh, he worked for Kolchak before Kolchak was defeated, and after Kolchak was defeated, fled to Mongolia and lived in uh, in Urga when Ungarn was there. And he seems to have actually gotten along with Ungarn, which is rare. Yes. <laughs> And then in 1922, this Polish guy published a best-selling book in English, which has an awesome title, Beasts, Men, and Gods, which are about his adventures in Mongolia. It's a good title. Makes me want to read it. Yep. Which, like one, it. Was, which one was Ungern? A beast, a man, or a god? <laughs> oh, all three. Oh, that's... Oh, oh, oh I, I like that. Mm. Anyway, so um, historians actually consider this Asiatic cavalry division that Ungarn led as sort of the uh, the origin of what eventually becomes the Mongolian National Army. Um, the division was divided up between national detachments. There were they had Chinese regiment, they had a Japanese regiment, they had Cossack regiments, Mongols, different types of Mongols, Tatars. Um, apparently, sixteen different nationalities served in this division, including dozens of Tibetans who were probably sent by the thirteenth Dalai Lama from Tibet because Ungarn and the Dalai Lama were pen pals. Of course they were. Why wouldn't they be? I mean, you know, when you're the re when you're the reincarnation of Genghis Khan, I feel like you've got to talk to the exactly. Dalai Lama. Yeah, he's he wants to know what's going on down there. It, precisely. <laughs> so anyway, uh, in the spring, uh, the Asiatic Cavalry Division was divided into two parts: one under Lieutenant General Roman Ungarn, and the other under Major General uh, Rajukin, who had been one of his sort of uh, frequent collaborators in this. Another White Army general. In May, Rajukin's brigade launched a raid beyond the Russian border, west of the Selenga River, and Ungarn's brigade went to the Russian town of Troitokosovask. Troitskovask. So, how Something. many syllables is that supposed to be? Sorry. God anyway. Meanwhile, the Red Army moved a large number of troops towards Mongolia from different directions, and they had a tremendous advantage in equipment. You know, they had armored cars, airplanes, trains, gunboats on the rivers. They had lots of ammunition. They had a lot more people. True. And as a result, Erngern was defeated in battles that took place in June, and he failed to capture Troitskosovsk. Uh, Troitskosovsk. That's hard um, to say. And... Uh, 
having after he was after his invasion was defeated, combined Bolshevik and communist sympathizers in Mongolia forces entered Urga on the 6th of July 1921 after a few small skirmishes with Ungarn's guards. So independent Mongolia didn't last very long. Yeah. Uh, July, so February to July. That's not very long. <laughs> no, I mean, I've had relationships last longer than that. That's like a vacation. <laughs> uh, well, a good so, vacation. Although, I mean, it's in Mongolia. How can it not be good? True. After they had captured Urga, um, but they still had the Reds. The Reds still hadn't defeated the main forces of the Asiatic Division. Ungarn had regrouped and attempted to invade the Transbaikal back over into Russian territory. And on the 18th of July, they started their raids into into Soviet territory. Apparently, about 3,000 men, according to people who were there, and they uh, they actually went really deep into the Soviet territory, captured a lot of towns, including. Novoselenginsk. Well said. I put, a lot, I put a lot of fun names in this just because. <laughs> but by then, Ungarn had understood that his offensive was not exactly logistically supported because they're just kind of riding through, like claiming towns, leaving, claiming the next town, leaving. And I really, you know, yeah, it's cool to capture the town, but how do you keep it when you don't have any, uh, logistical support. Yeah, not great with networking. We need to get Ungarn a, a LinkedIn page. <laughs> yep. So he also is warned that uh, large detachments of Red Army troops are coming to apprehend him, and so he begins his retreat back to Mongolia, where he declares his determination to fight communism towards the death. So at this time, as you can imagine, things are getting kind of demoralized in his troops. They've yeah. just kind of ridden like a couple hundred miles into Russia, taking towns that they then can't hold and are now retreating back to Mongolia. And there's a lot of communists everywhere. And it's it's not great. So his troops want to abandon the war effort and head towards Manchuria to join up with other Russian emigres and just live outside the Soviet Union. But that's not what Ungarn wants. He wants to retreat through Tuva and then into Tibet, where he'll hook up with the Dalai Lama to form a new army to go attack the Soviets. <laughs> that just that sounds a little bit like a like a long shot, but hey, I'm not I'm 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 not Ungarn. So that's his plan. Unfortunately, the troops don't like it, and um, both parts of the army, uh, Ungarns and Rajukins, end up mutinying and trying to kill their respective commanders. On the 17th of August, Rajukin was murdered and his half of the army kind of disintegrated. And a day later, conspirators attempted to assassinate Ungarn. They failed because how can you kill the man with the magic eyes? Okay. But his, you know, his military command kind of collapsed at that point and he was left without really his army because everything kind of fell apart. And he was captured by a Soviet detachment on the 20th of August. <sighs> F's in well, the chat. <laughs> well, I mean, they're probably happy they got him. I mean, he was kind of scary, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like everything in The Mad Baron's life, his trial and execution were pretty remarkable. After his capture, he was paraded across Siberia as, like an exhibition in a circus freak show, with crowds gathering at the train stations to gawk at the last white Russian commander 
because he had been the last commander leading troops in the field in Siberia. All the other white Russian generals had been defeated. Mm. So yeah, the last one, and who the Soviets have been making out to be this sort of almost supernatural monster for years with their propaganda, you know, his sort of Dracula castle of bones and everything. Right. I mean, there's a, to be fair, there's a lot of source material. But <laughs> I mean, he's but, he's a scary dude. But but yeah. we also know how how propaganda works. You have to really drive it home. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. So, unlike most um, real or alleged war criminals in other circumstances, um, Baron von Ungarn Sternberg answered all the questions sort of calmly and frankly. He denied nothing and openly confessed to almost every charge made against him, and he was very adamant that he had never been guilty of treason against Holy Russia. Well, treason was the, he said he would not admit to treason. So the first Soviets to interrogate him concluded that he was, quote, not psychologically healthy. They didn't go to far, so far as to say he was insane, but they did say he was not psychologically healthy. I mean, even from the Soviets, I would presume that might have been true. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, they're not always wrong, right? Like, look at this guy. He has magic eyes. <laughs> Yeah, it's possible. So, before the trial even started, a telegram came from Lenin that he should be found guilty and shot. Um, Gotta love the Soviet legal system, right? Oh, yeah. Lenin says it. I love that death of Stalin bit where they, this court (laughs) finds you guilty and sentences you to be shot, and they just immediately pull him outside and shoot him. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's how it went most of the time. (laughs) Yep. Props to that movie for being uh, accurate. Fun fact, the New York Times reported his death four days before it actually happened. That's weird. So was the New York Times communicating with Lenin? Mm. Mm. I'm not saying anything. The failing New York Times, someone said. (laughs) Failing New York Times. They're going to be fine. They're going to be okay, right, bro? (laughs) (laughs) So, it, um... He did have his his trial, and he sat before Soviet judges, but it was clear from the very start that they wanted to make sort of religion the the show point of the trial, and as sort of the real enemy and the root cause of the Baron's, you know, madness and crimes. The huh. official word on the trial was that the Baron had been, quote, infected by mysticism. Which is That's quite wild. a description. That's one way and to put it. <laughs> the lead prosecutor was a Jew named Emelian Yaroslavsky, who was also the founder of the League of Militant Atheists, which is, <laughs> I wouldn't buy cookies from the League of Militant Atheists <laughs> if they were doing a fundraiser. Oh, God. So they finally got back at him for, it's like if a phlegm put Watt Tyler on trial. I love it. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so the the founder of the League of Militant Atheists um, is the prosecutor. And he, in his questioning, he goes to great lengths to try to make Ungarn as this image of, uh, you know, sort of, this is what religion does to you. It gives you crazy eyes. <laughs> but that's not why they got He was infected with mysticism. <laughs> yep. And, of course, as Soviet trials go, uh, the Baron was not allowed to present any evidence on his own half, on his own behalf. Um, There were no witnesses called, and the whole procedure from start to finish lasted less than five and a half hours. Jeez. After which, um, he refused to make a final statement. Well, I mean, what can you do? You're got by the Soviets, and, you know, they're gonna get you no matter what, so... 
Yep. Good God. So it was 5.15 p.m. when he was condemned to be and was immediately taken out to be executed. And there are a lot of stories around his death. Um, it's hard to say, you know, which ones are true, how true they are. But there are one that comes up a lot is that he takes his St. George cross. You remember that military decoration that was so mm-hmm. important to him? And he actually chews it up and eats it to prevent it from being touched by filthy Bolshevik hands. <laughs> I love it. All right. <laughs> and apparently there's another story that one of the bullets hits one of the, like, Buddhist amulets he's wearing. Because remember, he is, uh, sorry, I've got to, got to scroll up. He is a Darkod Koshoi Chin Wang in the degree of Khan. Um, so, you know, he's got, he's got some bling with that. And one of the stories is that one of the bullets hits one of these things and bounces back and injures one of the Bolsheviks. Well, I mean, like you said... He is a... I'm not scrolling up for that. <laughs> he is infected with mysticism, so I could see this I could see this happening. The dirty commies getting what they... <laughs> yep. So, in any event, by all accounts, the the Mad Baron faced his, uh, his executioners calmly and bravely, and his death was swift. And so, Lenin and his fellow travelers could sleep more soundly at night, knowing that the boogeyman of the East was safely in his grave. The Soviet press, you know, made a huge deal of this great victory over over mysticism and uh, Bolshevik scientists dissected his brain in an effort to find some evidence of this mystical infection. Of course they did. Of course they did. That's. Of course they did. (laughs) And so, yeah, there's the the Bolshevik propaganda mill of kept his name as sort of a, you know, a byword for backward superstitious evil people for a long time um but it's probable that mongolia as an independent country would not exist if it hadn't been for him i could believe that yep i could totally see that he you know he had and he had restored the traditional mongol monarchy even if only temporarily sadly you know his ultimate goal of restoring the russian empire remains to be accomplished but you know we can hope we can yet, hope. Yet. And so, yes, uh, Baron Roman von Ungarn Sternberg had been a violent, mysterious, terrifying, exciting, and, you know, rather short life um, before dying. And no, it's not 89. I. No, I. It's not 89 years. I got that date wrong. However many years ago it was, it's like 90 something years. I think it's 99 years, maybe. Anyway, it's a long time ago. But, and this is one final little thing to end it on. When the news of the uh, execution reached the Bogut Khan, the living Buddha, he ordered services to be held in all the Buddhist temples throughout Mongolia in memory of the, the, the baron. Well, that doesn't surprise me at all, since they were best buds. <laughs> and he gave uh, him, what was that title again? One more time? Up, 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 scrolling up, scrolling up. Darkon Koshoi Chin Wang in the degree of Khan. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> rest off in top. peace. <laughs> Wow, what a, you know, I think one of the main things that I always notice whenever we cover something that has to do with the Russian Revolution is just how weird it all gets. You know, there's so much propaganda and information campaigns going around from all the different sides, and there's no two clear sides, um, for the most part, except for like Bolshevik and anti-Bolshevik. Everybody's telling stories about each other. And they're all kind of weird. Like, I'll never forget covering Trotsky and being like, hang on a second, did that really happen or is that just propaganda? And the reality is there's almost no way to know because records were falsified, deleted, burned. Um, 
all the rest and what really did survive those wars better than just about anything is the propaganda as opposed to, you know, the actual facts of the matter. Yep. And, and I and, uh, I included there at the end a picture of him right before he shot. Yeah, he looks like so a guy can, that the Soviets would want to take out. Let's be honest. You can see the St. George Cross. You can, you can almost see the scary eyes even in this blurry, faraway photo. Well, you can see that he's a head taller than most of those guys, so... Uh, I don't know if that means anything, but he does look like he's sort of levitating. That's what I'm implying. He looks like someone infected by mysticism. That's yeah, what he looks like. Definitely infected by mysticism. Um, ought to be rounded up and shot. That's for sure. But <laughs> oh wow, what a crazy story! I can't believe I've never heard of that guy before. I told you it was going to be wild. It was a wild ride. Was it? And I'm was it 3 a.m. History Channel quality? You could have thrown in a little bit more about the the uh, the Buddhism, but you know, yeah, I give it a pass. I wanted to hear more about how he didn't get shot and instead teleported away and flew away on a cloud with a I monkey tail. I personally wanted, I wanted to hear more about, uh, you know, this the the, uh, the hierarchy system that's involved in being a Darkon Koshoi Chin Wang and the degree of Khan. Like, what are the other degrees? Yeah, true. What are the other degrees? Well, I'm sure there's the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, perfect. Well, do you have any final thoughts? No, I think that was uh, I think that was well delivered and, and very interesting. Hmm. Yes, but I think we should uh, wrap this up and head to the service because we are two time. Sounds good. All right, off we go. if you had to pick our next holographic president con after king biden who would you choose and what degree of dark on koshoi chin wang would they be Ooh, ooh. <laughs> uh for the next holographic president after king biden hmm I don't know. I kind of think I'd like to see Ted Cruz get some superpowers and maybe get labeled a war god. Um, I don't magic know if that's going to happen. What? Magic eyes? He doesn't have the magic eyes. I don't no, know. If but you maybe could put... that maybe that can be his superpower. I don't want to see Ted Cruz with magic eyes. If I'm being completely honest, Ted, <laughs> imagine Ted Cruz with laser eyes or you know bright gray eye. That just freaks me out. No, it'd be it'd be Ted Cruz and. Um, he would have the superpower of, um, I don't know. He'd be like Doc Ock. He'd have eight metallic arms that he would tear apart liber- <laughs> liberals with. The power of the sun in the palm of my hand. And if it wasn't him, I, I who's who else is interesting in the interest of... Well, no, you better answer it, because I already took the best one. Ted Cruz, he's hilarious. I mean, I was going to say the Dalai Lama. Um, oh, oh, well. And then, you know... His superpower would be magic eyes. Well, I guess that's on theme. I guess <laughs> uh, Ted Cruz with magic eyes sounds infinitely scarier, I have to say. But that's not. I mean, the, the Dalai Lama probably already has magic eyes. I mean, he's the Dalai Lama, right? Mm. That's true. Well, 
on that hilarious note, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably a Bolshevik, so consider funding the show. I didn't write that, but it's probably true. Uh, consider funding our show by becoming a patron on patreon.com or joining our little red army. If Patreon is not your thing, you can always drop us a little tip in Venmo, and our handle is at WTADP. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of Mongol hordes play you out. <laughs>